2: Hi, this is Jean Beauvoir, and you're listening to Talking Metal.
3: That was a UFO beaming back at you. Me and Eric were down in Mexico two weeks ago. We seen forty of them flying in formation. They, 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 they have got bases all over the world now. You know they've been coming here ever since 1946, when the scientists first started bouncing radar beams off of the moon. And they have been living and working among us in vast quantities ever since. The government knows all about them. Mark Striegel, John Astronomy, the Talking Metal Podcast.
0: Coming to you from the Silver Spacecraft. Coming to you from the Silver Spacecraft. Coming to you from Silver Spacecraft. Hey,
4: welcome to episode 463 of Talking Metal. I'm
3: hanging out here in New York City with John Astronomy. How are you, John? I'm doing great. We are hanging out at the Marriott Marquis Hotel in Times Square, very, very cool place. We were going to initially meet at Starbucks, however, that has been closed down <laughs> temporarily due to construction. But anyway, guys, we have a great episode of Talking Metal for you today. We have a very, very special guest, Jean Beauvoir. And I've been a fan of his since back in the 80s. I have two of his solo records, Drums Along the Mohawk and Jackknifed, and then I've got some of the Crowns of Thorn stuff. And of course, Kiss fans will know him for his participation on the Animalize record and uh, various other different Kiss projects. He is just a great musician and a great guy. And if that's not enough, Plasmatics fans will know him uh, because he was part of that great, great band fronted by the late Wendy O. Williams. And don't forget, one
4: of my favorite, favorite records by the Ramones is produced by Jean. And he wrote a song, and he did some of the co-writing on it, and uh, just what a talented guy, all over the map musically, but all good, all good. So it's, a, it's an honor to have him on today's show. Again, as John mentioned, he has worked with Kiss, wrote stuff on Asylum, Animalized, and uh, a friend of Paul Stanley's for a number of years, we're going to talk to him about all this in the interview. But right now, let's get into a little Thrills in the Night by KISS.
3: was Thrills in the Night by Kiss, co-written by our very special guest today, Jean Beauvoir, one of my favorite musicians. I had a chance to, to meet him a couple of times, and I'm not sure if it was first through Gibson Guitars or if it was when I hung out with him at... The Queen's Queensryche concert at the Hard Rock Cafe a while ago. It was a benefit, and there were a lot of bikers, and uh, it was a really cool event. But I know that uh, I spoke to John for a few minutes, and that was on an earlier uh, episode of Talking Metal, way, way back in the day. But uh, once again, Mark, are really looking forward to hearing your interview, uh, me, along with all of the other Talking Metal listeners.
4: This is a great song.
1: Yeah,
4: let's just check it out, and we'll then check in with John. Around, and the night when the cold wind blows No one cares
1: nobody To the sacred place This ain't a dream I can't escape Moldings and fangs the clicking picking up bones Spirits moaning among the tombstones And at night when the moon is bright Someone cries in I right I don't want to be buried in a bad day. Hey. Dance, I curse these days and at night when no wolves cry Listen close then you can hear me shout
4: Hey, this is Mark Striegel, and on the line we have Jean Beauvoir. How are you, Jean?
2: I'm doing good, How about you?
4: Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for calling in to Talking Metal. Hey, my
0: pleasure,
2: my pleasure.
4: What you just heard was the Ramones off the Brain Drain record. Now, that Brain Drain record, you produced that?
2: I produced songs on the Brain Drain record. I did Animal Boy. And so there were some songs that I did on the Brain Drain record. Um, so I actually did "Pet Cemetery," "Merry Christmas," and I think that's pretty much it. "Punishment for the, the Crime" we had a different version that Dee Dee and I had done, oh, believe okay. it or not. That's um, different than the one they have on this record. But those are the only two songs that I did on Brain Drain. Those, ah, the singles. Okay, I
4: got you. I got you. And, <laughs> and then you I did. I know it
2: gets a little confusing because they released. So many different best ofs and they take songs from other records and and then people get confused. But yeah, that's the situation.
4: Yeah, and now you worked with Joey on what was his final solo record. Now, were you actually working with him on that before he passed away or were you brought in after his death to kind of help complete it?
2: I was brought in after his death. It's Basically, there were a, a collection of demos that were um, that the estate got from from Daniel Ray actually of songs that they had done together, um, and then from there I was asked to come in, and um and do some stuff on it. So I produced after the fact.
4: I got you. We're talking, of course, about the the Joey Ramone solo record, you know, which uh, came out right. uh, uh, quite a while after after he died, and. Were you bringing in musicians to kind of play on the tracks, add to the demos that were given to you?
2: Yeah, you could say that. But the truth is that for what I did, I did everything. (laughs) Uh, Because I'm a a multi-instrumentalist. I play different instruments. So I did everything on that track. I was just given a vocal. And so I played everything on that record. Wow. Okay. At least on the the songs that I did.
4: (laughs) Right on. Right on. And... As far as the guys in the Ramones go, most of them, with the exception of of Marky, are now gone. When is, like, the last time you actually spoke with uh, Johnny Ramone before he died? Oh, I mean, Johnny, Dee Dee, and Joey, for that matter.
2: Well, I spoke to all of them, like, very close to their death, because we we stayed pretty close in touch. Dee Dee and I were pretty close, um... I like Dede. I like them all. I mean, they're all great guys. But Dede and I had a special thing. And Joey, too, actually. Um, and Dee was in Germany. He was doing a show in Berlin not long before his death. And we had spoken then. Um, and then after that, that was the end of that. And Johnny Ramona I hadn't seen so much of. But Joey I would still run into because I spent a lot of time in New York. So we'd run into each other. We just kept in touch. And then, of course, that happened, and uh, you know, just like a lot of great friends that I've lost, they were gone, you know.
4: Right. And one of them that is still here with us is Marky Ramon. Are Are you friendly with him at all?
2: <laughs> I spoke to him not too long ago. Funny, funny thing, to mention that we spoke a couple of weeks ago. Just we were just catching up on some things. So I do keep in touch. It's a, it's a kind of a small knit circle, you know. So right on. Um and. You know, plus when I was doing stuff with Stephen Van Zandt, you know, we had two channels on Sirius Satellite. Marky had his channel, you know, so we'd always run into each other. He came and did some interviews for us, and you know, so we keep in touch. Yes, and also Richie Ramone. I spoke to Richie Ramone a few days ago as well. He just finished a tour that he did, you know, so we try to stay in touch.
4: Cool. Well, I would definitely want to talk to you about uh, Little Steven, but first let's let's talk about Crown of Thorns and just what you currently are up to? Can you give us an update?
2: Okay. okay. Well, things are, I mean, it's a pretty busy time right now, to be honest with you. My head's spinning a little bit. I've got a bunch of things going on. For one thing, I'm doing some solo shows in Norway, which um, is going to be May 3rd. Or May 3rd, and I believe May 9th. Uh, besides that, we're talking about doing some Crown of Thorns shows in September, October, also European Day. Um, so we're, we're working on something with like that. And right now we're in the middle of, uh, negotiating something from Mickey Free and I, you know, the original guitar player from Crown of Thorns to do a separate project called Beauvoir Free. So if that works out, well, we should be, you know, signing a deal to actually make a record pretty soon. And we're looking at doing dates too, even as early as April. Wow. As far as the Beauvoir Free thing, we might be doing some, um, I just got to about it today, we might be doing some shows in California, still okay. waiting for confirmation and some dates, but we might be doing some things in the middle of April, and then, you know, we plan to do a record towards the end of the year, and uh, and then probably more shows with go for so I'm doing a lot of different things on the music front, <laughs> you know, um, and at the same time, I'm involved in television, and <laughs> involved in some other things as well.
4: Oh, cool, there's a lot of writing going on, you've been writing songs for this project?
2: Well, yeah, I haven't started really writing for the project yet because we're just getting everything in place. And I'm I'm down in Florida. Mickey lives in uh, Sedona. Uh, the Crown of Thorns guys live in California, so everybody's kind of all, all over the place. So we have to. It's almost like appointment writing. But um, I've been writing for other things. Um, not too long ago, I I wrote for a, an Asian group, believe it or not, called Signee. and we had a pretty big success. We had um, it was number one in six countries and number five on iTunes US and number two. Billboard World Charts, so that's a complete different kind of a thing. But um, I always keep up with my writing, you know. So I do a lot of that on right. the side, and then of course the stuff I do with my rock bands, and um, yeah. So I, I keep my hands on a lot of different things, <laughs> and <when you> <laughs> including TV. television. Yeah, what's but the I TV just mentioning that I'm also uh, executive producing a TV show out of Norway. There's a lot of Norway stuff going on, by the way. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it's uh, it's for SBS Discovery, and that's also a music-based show. Where we'd be bringing on you know rock rock icons onto the t v show um for interviews and for doing uh you know skits and some interesting things for that, so I'm also involved in that
4: very cool, very cool, and let's go way back to nineteen eighty when you first became a member of the Plasmatics. Can you talk about okay. how you ended up in that uh great historic band
2: okay, um you know. I started with music really young. I I was already in like a junior high school rock band when I was 13. And believe it or not, around 14, summer when I was 14, I was found by Gary U.S. Bonds, um, who actually his manager saw us playing in some club, asked me how old I was until I was 18. So he took me and a bunch of older guys on the road, and I became his musical director. So I started working with him. So I started pretty early on, like out there doing stuff. And then after um, a few years of being on the road and doing stuff and playing with a lot of these oldies these guys, Gary Westbond, I did some stuff with Bo Diddley, Chuck Berry, all the Dick Clark shows, I kind of had a rebellious side to me. And I came into New York and joined a, a, a basement punk band called NYN. And we just started playing around in some clubs. And then one day we opened. It was the very beginning of the Plasmatics. And we opened for the Plasmatics. I think it might have been CBGBs, or I think it might have been CBGBs even, or Max's. And um, next thing you know, they were looking for a bass player, so I auditioned. And believe it or not, next thing you know, I got the call. You know um, that they were going they wanted me to join the band. So I joined the band, and then that was the beginning. And from there, we started the whole quest to what finally became, you know, something pretty interesting and exciting, for Plasmatics.
4: Can you talk about Rod Swenson and what his role in the plasmatics actually was?
2: Okay. I mean, Rod was a visionary. He was a very intelligent man. He, um, he, he met Wendy, you know, early before the plasmatics. and mean, she was doing sex shows, <laughs> not uh, in Times Square and stuff. And Rod had this idea. He was a very visual guy, and he liked things that were on the edge. So he was a very big part of the vision of the band at the beginning. Uh, we were all very young and we were just kinda getting to get into it. So he kind of helped us to, you know, to form this vehicle where all of us were kind of outcast in our own ways. You know what I mean? Right. You know, Richie being six foot whatever he was, seven or as tall as he is, you know, wearing a tutu and me being a black guy playing punk rock with a blonde Mohawk. You know, we all came from different places and we were looking for a place where we could just be ourselves. You know, and um but Rod was very important in, in the whole thing. It was pretty much at the beginning of his creation and of course the band came into it and then we all started to get involved and and then it became like the first incarnation of, of the plasmatics when it was Richie West and you know, myself and Wendy.
4: Right. And is it true that Prince was a fan of the Plasmatics?
2: Yes. <laughs> Believe it or not. Um, after I left the Plasmatics, um, I left what in 1981 or 82. I got a phone call from Prince's manager. And uh, he basically just said, You know, listen, Prince is a big fan of the Public mags, He's been following you for a long time and he'd love to sign you. And this was pretty much when he was just starting to do stuff as well. So they had offered me like a solo deal. And they said, Listen, if you want to do a solo record, you'll support that. And at the same time, he would like you to be based in his band. I turned it down at the time, because I was really, I had my mind set on doing my own thing, you know, and um, I have, you know, some pretty good offers back in those days, actually. I was pretty close to Billy Idol and Steve Stevens as well, and they were looking for a bass player, and they were like, "Why don't you just come do it with us? And I was like, nah, I really want to do my own thing, you know. I was kind of tired of being in in a band. I really wanted to do my own thing, so I didn't do any of those things, and I moved on, but Finally ended up joining Little Steven. <laughs> anyway, he's just had a better rap. <laughs> you know
4: I mean? Right, and how did you get to meet Little Steven? Where was the first place you actually ran into? Okay.
2: Um, you know, it's funny how all these things are intertwined. It's crazy how small this music business is. But I mentioned Scary U.S. Pond, Chuck Berry, and everything, and a manager who actually came and saw me in a club and took me out to do this. But in reality, what happened is, that manager was still managing Gary U.S. Bonds when I left the Plasmatics. And it just so happened that Bruce Springsteen and Steven were just about to produce a comeback record for Gary U.S. Bonds with that hit single, This Little Girl is Mine. Right. Okay. So when that happened, I mean, the manager actually, I was back in touch with the manager after I left the Plasmatics trying to figure out what I wanted to do because I couldn't get a record deal because everybody was like, you know, if you want to, want a deal, if you're ready to blow up some cards, we'll sign you. But <laughs> you know, you want to sing and make melodic music? Forget it. That's out of the question. So this manager came up to me one day and he said, "Listen, I'm working with little Stephen and Bruce Springsteen, and they're working on this record. I think you and Stephen might be a great match." I had a loft in New York City, like in the garment district, in you know, the 30th Street. And um, he said, "Why don't I offer them to rehearse Gary's project in your loft?" Wow, And then somehow you and Steven, I think, will hit it off. And then from there, let's see where it goes. So I said, yeah, why not? Let's do it. Let's do it. So um, they came over, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I met Steven. Stephen heard some of my stuff, and he was like, this is great. And I told him I can't get a deal. He said, listen, why don't you come work with me for a while? He said, you know, you come to the Platinum It's a great historic band for what it is, but musical credibility, it doesn't have. So, you know, maybe working with me is such an extreme coming from the whole Jersey thing and Bruce Springsteen, there couldn't be further opposites. You know what I mean? Right, so yeah. he said, why don't you do this with me? And I guarantee you, you do this for a little while, and then I'll get you a deal. And then we can take it from there. Right. And just, you know, there was just something about him and just, you know, the way he made me feel like a real part of what we were doing. And I think he was looking for kind of like a partner. You know what I mean? Kind of right what on. he had with Bruce. But he wanted something similar for you know in his own thing mm-hmm. so it was a great opening for me, so um you know, so he kind of mentored me, and i I joined him and ended up doing two albums and two tours working in the studio, and it really upped my game you know in a lot of ways, and then from there, you know, after I left Stephen, I finally went on to do my own solo thing, but it was um but I did end up joining him and, and working with him for two three years, I believe it was, until probably eighty two there. I didn't get signed. I got my first solar deal in '85. Wow.
4: Okay. Yeah. And you still work yeah. with Stephen today? I mean, you mentioned the serious uh, underground
2: garage thing, and and you do yeah. business with him. Well, I stopped. I stopped that about two years ago. But I did. I I went. You know, Stephen and I stayed friends for many years. I went back to him. I mean, it was you know how it is in this industry. We all everybody keeps in touch and always talks about what things are right, things are wrong in the industry. We're always having these long calls. Yeah. You know I mean, right. We all do that. You know, and. Um, one day he just called me and he said, listen, are you tired of making records yet? And, <laughs> well, I'm getting there. I think at that point I had made, you know, 100 albums. I would made Crown of Thorns albums, solo albums. I, you know, I've been a pretty prolific writer. So I've written so many different people and done so much stuff that he said, why don't you take a break? You know, I've got a company. We're doing, you know, we've got channels on Sirius. I've got the Underground Garage. I'm producing TV shows. I'm working with bands. So maybe it'd you some good to take a break for a while. And just clear your head and we can do some of our own things, you know. And it was it was um it was a welcome call because it was around that time where it was time to get a little perspective. So I, I stopped and I went up to head his company, so I became CEO of Renegade Nation. And I did that for six and a half years. Wow. believe it or not. Wow. It was a long time. Um and then after doing it for a certain amount of time, I started to get the bug again a couple of sure. years ago saying, you know, time is going by here and a lot of business, business that I'm doing here, but I really miss playing, I miss recording, I miss touring, you know, and um, I, I, mean, I kind of miss doing my own my own thing, just how I am, you know. So finally, I, we just parted ways, and I just, ever since then, I've kind of moved on and worked on my own stuff, and as I mentioned, records, TV, but stuff, you know, more for me now at this point.
4: Right on. And how about Paul Stanley? Where, where did you actually first meet him?
2: Ah, Paul. Hmm. It was a surprise meeting. Paul and I met at a dance club in New York. And If I'm not mistaken, I hope I'm not telling everybody the wrong name, but I think the name of the club was called Heartbreak. And it was like a, it was like the happening, happening like dance club downtown. I don't know if it was Barrack Street or something. I'm not sure, but down downtown, New York, and everybody used to hang there, like all rock and rollers, actors, everybody, you know. Brooke Shields, when she was a kid, would be on her parents' shoulder. I mean, everyone would be hanging out at these places, you know. And um, one day I just walked into this place, and this guy came over and said, hey, you're John from the Plasmatics, the bass player from the Plasmatics." So I said, yeah, yeah. And I barely recognized him because, you know, at that time they were still in, they just started to get out of the makeup thing. But that's I knew Kiss. I was a huge Kiss fan, but I knew him from makeup days. Example saying from KISS. I was like, yeah, all right, cool. And then from there, we just kind of hit it off and started talking, started spending time together, hanging out, going out. And we just became like best buds. And we actually didn't do any music till I think probably two, three years after that. Believe it or not. <laughs> I mean, it was like it took a while. We just became friends, you know, and just kind of hung out. And then one day, we just ended up being in his house some Chinese food and he whipped out a guitar and, and, you know, we started messing around and boom, and that's where our collaborating started.
4: And you're credited with uh, writing a number of Kiss songs um, and I guess the f- the first song that you co-wrote that ended up on a record was Thrills in the Night, which was on the That's right, the Animalized yeah. record. Was that one of the first songs you wrote with Paul?
2: Yes. It was. I mean, I know we messed around with different things, so at that point I'm trying to think, I'm just kinda of refreshing my memory here a little bit. I'm trying to think if there were other things that we threw away. Possibly. There might have been we might might have messed around with some riffs, but that is the first official song that I wrote with, with Paul that ended up on the record of the night. Now yeah.
4: on with Animalize, there's been, you know, for us hardcore KISS fans, there's been so many questions about who actually played bass on that record. Some people say it was Gene, other people say It was Mitch Weissman, and then there's some people that say you played bass on the whole record.
2: I didn't play bass on the whole record, and I know this is going to (laughs) sound really ignorant, but the truth is i literally have to go back and look at the credits myself to figure out to see which songs. But it's on Wikipedia. It says exactly which songs I played bass on. Um, But it was so casual back in the day because it wasn't something like, I'm a bass player and I'm hired to play bass on a Kiss record. You know, where it would be something that, it was almost like you just did it, but it was something that wasn't. He didn't talk about it. It wasn't spoken. I never thought it would ever come out, to be honest. I was actually surprised when some years ago, you know, somebody called me up and I think I was doing an interview and they said, So you played bass on blah blah blah. I was like, How did you know? I said, It's in the kiss book. It's oh, in wow. kiss books, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like because back in those days, you know, I seem was a real casual kind of guy, very practical. And it was something like, let's say Paul and I would have done a demo, which we'd do on a little four track Back in those days, and and I played a part, and the song just felt right. When we got into the studio, Gene would just say, you know, hey, why do you just you play it?
4: Right, yeah. You know,
2: either he's in the other room on the phone or doing something else, and it's almost like you know, why should I relearn it since <laughs> you already know it and you've got a good feel for it? So why don't you just play it? And of course, I lo- I loved it. It was great. Did so you have- we did that kind of. Thing. and I, I probably did some background vocals on some of the songs too. Oh, because cool. Paul and I would just hang out. So we just anytime he was going to the studio he'd call me up and say, Oh, I'm gonna be at, you know, this studio today, why don't you come by and we'll go to lunch or something. So I'll come by and if I'm there if they needed something, oh, why don't you play bass on that map? and just pick up a bass and play it. So it was very casual the way it happened.
4: Absolutely. And did you have much contact with Eric Carr back in those days?
2: Yeah, I did. Um, I saw him we didn't hang out separately. Um, but but I did see him a lot because there, there were a lot of kiss, you know events, There'd be a lot of things you know whether, whether it be somebody's birthday party or you know, you know going bowling on a Sunday in a certain place or whatever where everybody was kind of invited and hanging out. So I'd see Eric quite a bit at the time. Yeah, so I did know him. But he was a nice guy. we' a nice guy.
4: And the guitar player on that record, Animalize, was a guy named Mark Saint John, who was really only in the band briefly, for the recording of that record, the video, and then you know, for a, just a handful of dates on, on the tour. Did did right. you notice that maybe he wasn't vibing well with the members of KISS while they were in the studio?
2: You know, uh, I can't say that I really noticed that. Um, I knew Mark as well. But it was, again, a, a kind of a casual relationship. I wasn't really that deep into it. And as close as Paul and I were, we'd spend time. He never really talked about the details of his business, if you know what I mean. it would be more overall. You know what I mean? Like, uh, be careful. Don't spend too much money. You know what I mean? The bottom will fall out one day. You know, the things that were more like, you know, overall experience, because it was almost like he was a big brother to me. You know what I mean? Right. And yeah. um, But but he didn't really get into, oh, God, I'm having problems with Mark. I'm, you know, no. it never, we never had those kind of discussions. I, I wasn't really privy to what was going on in the details. I would just find out, Oh, our management's fired today. Or right. we're gonna fire our management today. Yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? Literally. <laughs> or you know, um or you know, Mark's no longer in the band. What happened? <laughs> ah I just didn't work out. Right, right. <laughs> that that kind of a thing. You right.
4: know what I mean? Absolutely. And you, you went on to work uh with them on the asylum record too, but uh Probably enough about Kiss for now. Let's talk about the Crown of Thorns, the first album that came out back in in 1993. Uh, I mean, I guess it kind of ties into to Kiss a little bit because uh, Paul had some involvement in that,
2: right? And, and Absolutely, you, that's right.
4: Tell tell us just Great. any memories you can share on that first Crown of Thorns record.
2: We had a lot of fun. I mean, pretty much. Let me see. I I would say, is it late '80s, end of '80s? I Ended up what well, we all did. right? Paul and I moved out to LA probably around the same time. So and Gene was really close with Mickey Free. You know, it's funny I mentioned Mickey because as I said earlier we're making another record, Bob Frey. Really but um, so Gene always liked Mickey. He had discovered him in Chicago years before that, um, way back in like when Gene was dating Diana Ross, and Paul and I were spending time. So when I was off, I was offered a solo deal by Interscope. Around ninety, ninety-one by Jimmy Iovine, and I kind of said, ah, maybe I think I'd like to now do a band thing. It sounds interesting, and I had been spending time with Mickey and Tony Thompson. I remember Tony Thompson, the fantastic drummer, of
4: course from you know, Power Station. and
2: yeah. he's great, you yeah. know. And so we had been talking, and I said, you know, this might be a good thing for this. So Gene and Paul got on the phone together, and they said, you know what, this is great. And Gene said, Mickey be great, John. Why don't we do this? And why don't we all get together and try to do this as a you know, as a unit? Almost like they they became management. We took the deal I had with Inescop, put everything together, and put together this big package. And you know, Gene. Gene turned it into a big bidding war right. you know, between all these different labels, and and the thing got a little bit crazy, and things took quite a while. And then we started recording, and um, it was a great experience making that record. It got a little bit crazy, you know, towards the end, because there were a lot of chefs. You know, it was one of these big deals for Interscope, and whenever they make those you know, those big, you know, those deals that are bigger-than-life kind of deals, there's always everybody wants to get their hand in it. So it got a little bit complicated. The record took a, a lot longer than it should have taken. And then finally, by the time the record was done and we were ready to rock, and unfortunately it didn't come out in the U.S. because grunge had hit. All right. And how you know long did saying? Tony
4: Thompson stay with you guys? Huh? How long did Tony Thompson stay with, with the band?
2: He was there through the recording, but basically we were about to do some dates. Some, um, we were doing some U.K. dates at the very beginning. And for some reason, I don't know if it was Power Station or something else that he had going, he had some other commitments so he couldn't do the show. So he didn't come. But, I mean, nothing, there, was, man, there wasn't a problem. Tony was one of our dear, dear friends. I mean, right up to the date. He died. Yeah, we hung out together, but it was just like a, whatever monetary, whatever it was, and I can't, I just can't do those shows because it's just not enough money, or he had something else going on, right?
0: right. You did,
2: know, so he got replaced by Hawk Lopez. I gotcha.
4: Did Tony ever share any stories about about Led Zeppelin? You know, he did that Live Aid reunion, and there was rumors that they actually, after that, had started rehearsing with him for a potential tour that never ended up happening.
2: Yes, they he were ever... doing that. that. He did tell us about that.
4: Yeah. We were really
2: proud of him. I mean, because it's, you know, Led Zeppelin, that's it, and they're the gods, you know. So we were total supportive of that. We were hoping that happened. But, um, no, it's, it just didn't work out. But um, that would have been great.
4: Yeah. Cool. cool. Well, you need to write a book, man. you got so many different stories and, and people and that you've countered over the years and so prince going back to the prince thing he was kind of he you got to be kind of friendly with him right
2: well you know he was um I don't know if it was the right thing to say but he you know, I admired him for one thing but he he admired me somehow from afar you right. know for a while and um he always did and cuz he he came back into the fold several times you know so first of all he had, you know he had offered me this thing way back in the plasmatic days and believe it or not when we were about to sign with Interscope, Prince met with Tony and I, oh, wow. and offered us another deal. He said, "I'll outbid Interscope wow. for Crowd of Thorns*." You know, but I hate to say it, he wasn't a huge fan of Nikki <laughs> at the time,
4: uh, so he
2: just felt that we should get a different guitar player. Right. You know, so um, and we weren't willing to do that, you know, because we we had our thing together. So we just said, "You know what? Maybe it's not the right move," and we went with Interscope instead. But yeah, Prince stayed. You know, we. We spent time together for a while. As a matter of fact, I spent some time in Sweden. I did my whole solo record, in the whole 1985 um, solo record, drums along in Mohawk when I was signed with my uh, Richard Branson in the UK. He let me go make my record in Sweden, so I started an entire like thing in Sweden. I did everything that I, all the music I did, I did in Sweden. I produced the Ramones in Sweden. Wow. They came over. Johnny wasn't too fond. <laughs> because it yeah. was no baseball. But, um, but besides that, you know, I had ABBA's studio. Uh, they pretty much just gave me an incredible deal, and um, just, I literally had that studio for a couple of years where we just, it was like my home. So I did the drums on the Mohawk there, did um, Ramones there, and, and it was just um, a great thing. And Prince ended up coming over one time, you know, just out of nowhere, and I found out Prince is coming to town. Mm. <laughs> He's coming to rehearse. Wow. I am like, you're coming to rehearse in Sweden? Why would you want to, <laughs> nobody at that time was really doing anything in Sweden. Everybody was like Switzerland, you know. But um, he came over and he set up his whole tour and did everything. So we got to, you know, spend a little time over there and and mess around, play a couple little gigs, and and, and that's it. And um, it's been quite a while since I've seen him, actually.
4: And Prince, like, you know, when you hear his guitar playing, it it has such a heavy edge at times. You know, he he can play the funky and the light stuff, too, but, but he does really have that hard rock distortion Thing mastered, and is is he? a am guessing he must be a pretty big fan of of hard rock music, even though he's
2: not really making hard rock music. You know, he 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 is. I believe he is. I mean, just in conversations that we've had, you know, back in the day, he would tell me, you know, I really admire what you're doing, and that you're really going out there, being on the edge, and and doing hard rock. You know what I'm saying? He kind of felt like I like it. But I don't know if I'd go that far. And I think I don't know if it was just, you know, business or or what, that he just maybe didn't feel that that's something that was going to happen. Because, you know, we went through a whole period of time where there weren't a lot of black artists doing rock and having success with it. It just just didn't happen. You know what I mean? And especially back in those days, it really wasn't happening. So a lot of people would look at me and say, why would you want to do that? Yeah. (laughs) Like. You know, why? It's like, well, you should make a phone cracker to do something. Throw a little, just put a guitar in there if you want on the side. Yeah. You know, but well, why would you put your career on the line and and try to do something that is probably not going to work? Right on. <laughs> if you know what I'm saying?
4: Just before we let you go, a couple other names that have been associated with you, I think more on a friendship level. I just wanted to ask you about David Lee Roth. Were you friendly with him at one time?
2: Yes. I was david i met david at a plasmatic show wow it's an interesting story um we were i think we were playing perkins palace or santa monica civic It might have been santa monica civic and you know at that time we had a security guard etc and my guys came over and said listen there's this band in the parking lot uh van halen and they don't have tickets for the show should i you know let, let them in and i said yeah yeah i love this band and they had you really got me. Before that, I was a big fan of the band. I was, I was like, I was like, honor, oh, like, oh, like honor. They said, yeah, come on back. I had a whole picture somewhere of me and David in the dressing room at that show ah. together. Wow. Right before I went up on stage. And so David came back, and um, we kind of hung out, and he watched the show. And then he invited me out that night. He said, you know, what are you doing after the show? You don't know LA that well. I'll take you out. I he had an old Mercedes at the time. And he took me out. Went out to a couple of clubs. We hung out, talked, and he was actually one of the one of the reasons why I left the Plasmatics. Really? <laughs> because, believe it or not, um, we were just kind of talking, and you know, he said, "Oh man, you guys must make a killing on merchandising and all these nights that you're playing in Santa Monica and this." Because we were playing, you know, multiple nights in a lot of clubs. We had like a different system. We wouldn't do like, let's go do one arena show. We'd set up something where we'd do like. Ten nights at the Whiskey, then we'd go down the street and do four nights at Perkins. Then we'd go do four nights at Santa Monica Civic. So it ended up being close to a hundred thousand people or sixty thousand people, but it was over a long period of time. This way, it created this whole vibe in Los Angeles where people really knew. You know, the Plasmatics are in town for three weeks. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Yep. Instead of one night they're here and then they're gone. Oh, did they play last night? Oh, I missed it. Yeah. So um, anyway, so. We were talking about that. He said, oh, God, you should be making all this money. And, and I actually wasn't. You know, It's just um, Rod was not doing really the right thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And um, it was getting to that point where we started to realize that you know, we weren't really getting what we should be getting for the success level of the band at that point. So David said, are you, man? I, I don't know if I'd stick around. He said, you go do your own thing. And I think that little vote of confidence, I said, yeah, I actually went. I quit the band. Wow. And I moved up. Wow! I was already kind of feeling that I was heading in that direction. Right. And I wasn't really happy with the way things were going. But, you know, it's nice. And you have a lead singer of a great band. that tells you, you know, hey, you got it. Go do your own thing. You don't need to be here. Interesting. And, and then from there, we kind of kept in touch. And we stayed friends. And then somehow, it just kind of dissipated. which just does. Yeah. It just depends. You know, I spent a lot of time living in Europe, so... A lot of friends I lost touch with because I went and lived in Berlin or I lived in someplace yeah. else or the UK, right, and I don't see people. So yeah. next thing you know, three, four years goes by, and then all of a sudden one day we reconnect. You right. know what I mean?
4: Right on. How about Rob Halford? You were friends with him too.
2: Yeah, I was actually. It was when I say it was short. Again, it's one of those things where nothing happened or anything. It was uh, let's see where I actually met him. The only thing I can actually I remember us meeting up in some clubs and hanging out actually flew somewhere to go see them. We kept in touch for a while. I was a fan of Jesus Priest. I thought the man was great, and I think it was just that thing. Uh, I was saying that to somebody the other day that we just had this that, you know, I had the blonde mohawk, the black guy, and Rob Alford was totally extreme in the metal world. You know, David Lee Roth had his own thing, Paul Stanley. These were all guys, and we just kind of got along. We had things in common, yeah. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, and um, yeah, so Rob was great. He was a Really cool guy. We hung out for a while. But also, I haven't seen him in a long time. It, uh quite a while. Because I think he kind of fell off the map for a minute, then he started doing other things. Kind of like, next time you run into him somewhere, I'll see him, we'll you know exchange numbers again, and we'll hang out again. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's how it works. It's crazy.
4: Well, John, thanks so much for joining us on Talking Metal. I wish you all the luck with the uh, the upcoming projects and, and music, and hoping you get through the New York, New Jersey... Sometime uh, soon with some live performances. I'd love to come out and see you.
2: Okay, let's keep in touch, and you'll be more than welcome to come over, man. Sure, it'd be great to see you.
3: Crown of Thorns featuring John Beauvoir and what a great interview Mark. Uh, great, great to have John back on Talking Metal. One of my favorite musicians since the mid 80's for sure. Yeah, so much great work from the Plasmatics to Little Steven to
4: Kiss to the Ramones the list goes on and on and on. Uh, he's, he's done a lot in his lifetime and I'm sure he will be doing more. So let's wrap things up. Maybe hit a little more music to take us out here what do you want to play, John? Anything
3: anything uh, s- specific? Okay. Yeah, you know what, Mark? Why don't we hear a little bit of John Solo stuff from back in the 80s? This is a track called Feel the Heat. It's off of Drums Along the Mohawk. And it was actually chosen by Sylvester Stallone for his film Cobra. Right now, here is Feel the Heat by Jean Beauvoir off of Drums Along the Mohawk.